0: Section 1 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 9. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 9, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 1, Part 1 the pencil of Lely has rendered every one familiar with the languishing dark eyes classic features and graceful form of the italian consort of james the second that painter was never weary of multiplying portraits of a princess who completely realized his beau ideal of female loveliness and who so well became the rich and picturesque costume which his exquisite taste had rendered the prevailing mode of the court of the second charles She appears to no less advantage, however, when depicted by him in the character of innocence, without a single ornament to enhance her natural charms, such as she was when she came to England in the early ripeness of Sweet Fifteen, as the reluctant bride of the Duke of York. We recognize her in her youthful matron dignity among the light-o-lovely beauties in the Hampton Court Gallery, but distinguished from them by the Vestal-like expression of her face. Her portraits at a more advanced period of life as Queen of England are among the finest specimens of Sir Godfrey Kneller's art. Every one of these transcripts of the royal beauty tells its progressive tale of melancholy interest to the few who are intimately acquainted with the events of her life. Little, however, is now remembered in England of this queen beyond the bare outline facts, that she was a princess of modena the consort of a dethroned and most unpopular sovereign and the mother of the disinherited prince to whom the world applied the contemptuous epithet of the pretender the conjugal tenderness of matilda of boulogne of eleanor of castile and of philippa is deservedly appreciated the maternal devotion of margaret of anjou the patience of the long-suffering catherine of Aragon, have received their due meed of praise for they have become matter of history but the history of mary of modena for obvious reasons has never been given to the world bold indeed would have been any writer of the last century who should have ventured to call attention to the virtues and the sufferings of the faithful consort of the last and most unfortunate of the stuart kings among the princesses who have worn the crown matrimonial of england many have been born in a more elevated rank than mary beatrice of modena but few could boast a more illustrious descent than she claimed as the daughter of the house of Este that family so famous in the page of history derives its name from the city of Este near the Euganian hills between Verona and Padua. And surely no name is associated with nobler themes of interest than the line of heroes of whom Tasso, Ariosto, and Dante have sung more than once they have repelled the progress of the ferocious hordes of the barbarians who came prepared to ravage the fair fields of italy forestus of este the immediate ancestor of mary beatrice of modena was in the year four fifty two entrusted with the command of the forces sent to relieve aquileia he met and put to flight sixteen thousand of attila's terrible huns and he continued to defy and hold the mighty barbarian at bay Till by the treachery of some of his soldiers he was drawn into an ambush, where it is believed he was slain by Attila's own hand. His son Arcanius more than equalled his father's fame and with better fortune maintained the freedom of his country for a much longer period till he too sealed his patriotism with his blood poetry and romance have perhaps scattered their flowers among the traditionary glories of the ancient heroes of the line but those garlands were the motive offerings of the grateful chroniclers and immortal bards of italy who in every age from remote antiquity found their noblest patrons in the chivalric and munificent princes of the house of Este. no family in europe has indeed contributed more to the progress of civilization by liberal encouragement of literature and the fine arts our sovereign lady queen victoria is the representative of the elder branch of this illustrious stock which in the year one thousand divided into two distinct houses in consequence of the marriage of the reigning prince Ozzo, Marquess of tuscany and liguria with the heiress of the wealthy bavarian family of Wolf or guelph when the eldest of his two sons by this alliance took the name and estates of his german mother the younger became the representative of the house of este in italy and his descendants reigned over the united duchies of ferrara and modena alfonso the second dying in the year fifteen ninety eight without issue bequeathed his dominions to his kinsman caesar d'este but pope clement the eighth under the pretence that ferrara was a fief of the papal empire seized on that territory and annexed it to his dominions. After the loss of this fairest jewel in the ducal bonnet, the representative of the Italian line of Este was only recognized in Europe as Duke of Modena. This territory is bounded on the south by Tuscany and Lucca, on the north by the Duchy of Mantua, on the east by Bologna and the papal dominions, and on the west by Parma. It is about fifty-six English miles in length and thirty-sixth in breadth. It is a fair and fruitful district, abounding in corn and wine. The Duke, though a vassal of the Germanic Empire, is absolute in his own dominions. The father of Mary Beatrice was Alfonso d'Este, Duke of Modena, son of Francisco the Great and Maria Farnese. Her mother, Laura Martinozzi, claimed no higher rank than that of a Roman lady being the daughter of count Hieronimo martinoza dafano a roman nobleman of ancient family and margaret fourth sister of the famous minister of france cardinal mazarin mary beatrice eleanora d'este was the first fruit of this marriage she was a seventh-months child born prematurely in the ducal palace october fifth sixteen fifty eight the name of beatrice was given her in honor of saint beatrice a princess of the house of este whose spiritual patroness she is of course supposed to be. According to the legendary superstitions of Modena, this royal saint was accustomed to knock at the palace gate three days before the death of every member of the Ducal family. A runaway knock from some mischief-loving urchin may probably have frightened more than one of the princely race of Este out of several years of life from having been construed into one of the ominous warnings of Holy Saint Beatrice. The city of Modena claims the honor of the birth of Tasso, of Correggio, and of the imperial general Montecuculi. A daughter of that house was educated with the young Mary Beatrice, and remained through life unalterably attached to her fortunes through good and ill. The father of Mary Beatrice, says a contemporary historian, was a prince who would have been without doubt an ornament among the sovereigns of his age, if hard fortune had not fettered his talents in the cruel chains of the gout, which circumscribed his reign to four years of continued pain, during which, his greatest consolation, as he himself affirmed, was that of having married a lady who appeared born to bring comfort to his afflictions. It was, indeed, fortunate for Duke Alfonso that he had chosen a consort from a rank not too much elevated, to prevent her from being skilled in one of the most valuable attributes of woman in domestic life, the sweet and tender office of a nurse. The Duchess Laura manifested so much compassion and affectionate consideration for her suffering lord, that he never heard from her lips a word that could lead him to suppose that she was displeased at being the wife of a prince who was generally confined to his bed worn out with the acuteness of his agonizing malady he died in the flower of his age leaving his two infant children francis the second his successor and mary beatrice the subject of the present biography to the guardianship of his duchess on whom he conferred the regency of modena during the long minority of his infant successor francesco who was two years younger than mary beatrice prince rinaldo deste afterwards cardinal deste the younger brother of alfonso was appointed as the state guardian of the children and associated with the widowed duchess in the care of their education but all the power was in her hands the princely orphans were early trained in habits of virtue and religion by their mother so fearful was she of injuring their characters by pernicious indulgence that she rather erred on the opposite side by exercising too stern a rule of discipline in their tender infancy she loved them passionately but she never excused their faults both were delicate in constitution but she never allowed them to relax their studies or the fasts enjoined by the church of which they were members on that account the little princess had an insuperable aversion to supe migre but her mother who was always present when the children took their meals compelled her to eat it notwithstanding her reluctance and her tears mary beatrice from whose lips these little traits of her childhood were recorded after she was herself a parent was wont to say that the duchess her mother considered this severity as her duty but for her own part she would not imitate it for on fast days when she was compelled to eat of the migre she always left the table in tears and she wished not for her children to regard any observance connected with their religion in so painful a light but rather to perform those little sacrifices of inclination as voluntary acts of obedience her mother forbade sweetmeats and cakes to be given to her and the little duke her brother lest such indulgences should create a propensity to gluttony But that these orders were frequently broken, there can be no doubt. For Mary Beatrice, when discussing this matter, also in after years, said, I recommend my son and daughter not to eat sweetmeats and cakes, but I did not forbid them, well knowing that these things would then have been given them by stealth, which it is not always possible to prevent, and this would have accustomed them to early habits of concealment and petty artifice, perhaps of falsehood. The Duchess of Modena discouraged every symptom of weakness and pusillanimity in her children, considering such propensities very derogatory to persons who are born to move in an elevated station. Those who conduct the education of princes can never place too much importance on rendering them, habitually, insensible to fear. Intrepidity and self-possession in seasons of peril are always expected from royalty the greatest regnal talents and the most exalted virtue will not atone to the magnitude of the absence of physical courage in a king or queen when mary beatrice was a little child she was frightened at the chimney-sweepers who came to draw the chimney of her nursery her mother made them come quite close to her to convince her there was no cause for alarm the young duke was compelled to study so hard that it was represented to the duchess regent that his health was injured by such close application and that his delicate constitution required more recreation and relaxation her reply was that of a roman mother better that i should have no son than a son without wit and merit one day when the little princess was repeating her daily devotional exercise she missed one of the verses in the benedictite and as she continued to do so every time she was made to repeat that psalm the duchess gave her a box on the ears. Her uncle, Prince Rinaldo d'Este, asked the two children whether they liked best to command or to obey. The young duke said boldly, he should like best to command. The princess replied meekly, that she liked better to obey. Their uncle told them, it was well that each preferred doing that which was most suitable to their respective vocations alluding to the duke's position as a reigning prince and probably not anticipating for mary beatrice a loftier destiny than wedding one of the nobles of his court her own desire was to embrace a religious life her governess to whom she was passionately attached quitted her when she was only nine years old to enter a convent mary bewailed her loss with bitter tears till she was sent to the same convent to finish her education She found herself much happier under the guidance of the Carmelite sisters than she had been in the Ducal Palace, where nothing less than absolute perfection was expected by her mother in everything she said and did. There is withal in the heart of every young female of sensibility a natural craving for that sympathy and affectionate intercourse, which ought ever to subsist between a mother and her daughter. The Duchess of Modena loved her children devotedly, But she never caressed them or treated them with those endearments which tender parents delight to lavish on their offspring. Mary Beatrice often spoke in after years of the stern discipline to which she had been subjected in childhood with the observation, that she liked not to keep her children at so awful a distance from her as she had been kept by her mother, as she wished her daughter to regard her as a friend and companion, one to whom she should confide every thought of her heart the spirit of maternal wisdom shone far more benignantly in mary d'este than in her mother who had been elevated from private life the mode of life pursued by mary beatrice in the convent the peculiar style of reading and the enthusiastic interest that was excited among the cloistered votaresses by dwelling on the lives of female saints and royal virgins who consecrated themselves in the morning flower of life to the service of god had the natural effect of imbuing her youthful mind with mysticism and spiritual romance. There was an aunt of Mary Beatrice, scarcely 15 years older than herself, in the same convent, to whom she was very tenderly attached. This princess, who was her father's youngest sister by a second marriage, was preparing herself to take the veil, and Mary Beatrice was desirous of professing herself at the same time. Very rarely, however, does it happen. That a princess is privileged to choose her own path in life. The death of Anne Hyde, Duchess of York, proved the leading cause of linking the destiny of this young innocent recluse, who thought of nothing but veils and rosaries, with that of the most ill-fated prince of the luckless house of Stuart, James, Duke of York, afterwards the second king of Great Britain of that name the youthful career of this prince though by no means so familiar to the general reader as that of his brother charles the second is scarcely less replete with events and situations of stirring interest he was born at st james's palace october fourteenth sixteen thirty three at midnight when only nine years old he marched by his royal father's side in the front of the line at edgehill and stood the opening volley of the rebel's cannon as boldly as any gentleman there he was not thirteen when he fell into the hands of the parliamentary forces at the surrender of oxford in june sixteen forty six the next day sir thomas fairfax the commander of the rebel army came with the other leaders to pay him a visit cromwell who was among them thought proper to kneel and kiss his hand and this was the more remarkable as he was the only person by whom this mark of homage was offered to the captive prince James was conducted to London under a strong guard. Within four miles of the metropolis, he was met by the Earl of Northumberland and committed to his custody. All his old attached servants were then dismissed by the order of parliament, not even excepting a little dwarf, of whom he was very fond and begged to be permitted to retain. After this preliminary, he was conducted to St. James's palace, where he found his sister, the Princess Elizabeth, and his little brother Gloucester. His adventures while a prisoner in his natal palace, and the manner in which he effected his escape to Holland, are like the progressive scenes of a stirring drama. While in France, James withstood the attempts of his mother to compel him to forsake the communion of the Church of England with unswerving firmness. In the year 1652, he offered to serve as a volunteer in the Royalist Army, under the banner of Turin during the civil war in france which succeeded the outbreak of the fronde it was with great difficulty that he succeeded in borrowing three hundred pistoles for his outfit james fought by the side of Turin, on the terrible day of the barricades de Saint-Ouen, and was exposed to great peril in the assault on this and other occasions of peculiar danger the princely volunteer gave proofs of such daring intrepidity and coolness that his illustrious commander was wont to say, that if any man in the world were born without fear, it was the Duke of York. His keen sight and quick powers of observation were of signal service to Turin, who was accustomed to call him his eyes, and so high an opinion did that experienced chief form of his military talents, that one day, pointing to him with his finger, he said to the other officers of his staff, that young prince will one day make one of the greatest captains of the age a bond of more powerful interest than the friendship of this world united the princely volunteer and his accomplished master in the art of war they were of the same religion tureen and the duke of york were perhaps the only protestants of high rank in the royalist army history would probably have told a fairer tale of both if they had adhered to their early opinions James was in his 21st year when he commenced his second campaign as a lieutenant-general. He was the youngest officer of that rank in the French service and the most distinguished. His great talent was as an engineer. At the siege of Mousson, where he was at work with his company in the ditch of the envelope, under the great tower, a storm blew away their blinds and left them exposed to the view of those on the ramparts. "'Yet all of us,' says he, were so busily employed picking our way the ditch being full of dirt and water that not one single man observed that the blind was ruined and we consequently in open view till we had gotten half our way and then one of our company proposed that we should return to which i well remember i would not consent urging since we were got so far onward the danger was equal So we continued on, but in all the way we were thus exposed. Not one shot was fired at us, at which we were much surprised. After the town surrendered, the governor informed us that being himself on the wall and knowing me by my star, he forbade his men to fire upon the company. The very fine three-quarter length original portrait of this prince in the royal gallery at Versailles represents him such as he was at that time. And certainly he must have been one of the handsomest young cavaliers of the age he is dressed in the light graceful armor of the period with a van dyke falling collar bareheaded and his fine forehead is seen to great advantage with the natural adornment of rich flowing ringlets of beautiful chestnut hair a little disheveled as if blown by the wind instead of the formal disguising periwig with which we are familiar in his more mature portraits and medals In the Versailles portrait, James is in the first glory of manhood, full of spirit and grace. His features, at that time, uninjured by the ravages of the smallpox, are bold, but retain the softness of youth. His eyes are large, dark and expressive, the lips full and red, and the natural fairness of his complexion, embrowned with a warm healthful tint. This portrait bears a strong likeness to his daughter Mary at the same period of life. When the royal English brothers were in 1655, in consequence of the treaty between Mazarine and Cromwell, excluded by name from France, James resigned his command, having served four hard campaigns under Turenne. He was offered the post of captain-general in the army in Piedmont, of which the Duke of Modena, the grandfather of Mary Beatrice, was the generalissimo, but his brother Charles forbade him to accept it it was in obedience to the commands of charles that james reluctantly entered the spanish service in which he also distinguished himself especially in the dreadful battle among the sandhills before dunkirk where he and his british brigade of exiled cavaliers were opposed to the cromwellian english troops when greek meets greek then comes the tug of war james performed prodigies of unavailing valor that day and finally, at the head of twenty men, the sole survivors of the two regiments he commanded, cut his way through the French battalions to the village of Zudcote. How incredible would it have appeared to those who fought under the banner of the princely knight-errant, and witnessed his fearless exposure of his person on so many occasions, that day as well as during his four campaigns under Turin. If anyone had predicted that the injustice of a fraction of his own country would ever succeed in throwing a stigma on his courage. The ardent love which he bore to his native land, and the lingering hope entertained by him that he might one day be able to devote his talents to her service, prevented James from accepting the brilliant offers that were made to him by the court of Spain in the commencement of the year 1660. These hopes were soon afterwards realized when England called home her banished princes at the Restoration, and he shared in the rapturous welcome with which all ranks of people united in hailing the public entrance of his royal brother into london on the twenty ninth of may james's marriage with anne hyde was unfortunate in every respect it had the effect of involving him in the unpopularity of her father clarendon and of entailing upon him the enmity of buckingham bristol shaftesbury and the rest of that party who fancying that james would one day avenge his father-in-law's injuries on them were unremitting in their efforts to deprive him of the royal succession clarendon appears perfectly satisfied with james's conduct to his daughter and always speaks of the domestic happiness of the duke and duchess as a contrast to the conjugal infelicity of the king and queen james was an unfaithful but not an unkind husband and the duchess was too wise to weary him with jealousy how merrily they lived may be inferred from some little circumstances recorded by pepys who notices in his diary that he came one day into a room at whitehall whence the chairs and tables had been removed and surprised the duke of york sitting with his duchess and her ladies on a hearth-rug playing at the christmas game i love my love with an a etc with great glee and spirit While James occupied the post of Lord Admiral of England, his attention was bestowed not only on every branch of naval science but in the foundation and encouragement of colonies in three different quarters of the globe, namely in Hindostan, at Long Island in America, which was called in honor of him New York, and others on the coast of Africa. These all became sources of wealth and national prosperity to England. The jealousy of the Dutch was excited. They had hitherto endeavoured to exclude the British merchants from the trade both of the East and West Indies, as well as to usurp to themselves the sovereignty of the seas. They committed aggressions on the infant colonies founded by the Duke of York, and he prevailed on his brother to allow him to do battle with them in person on the seas. His skill and valour achieved the most signal triumph over the fleets of Holland that had ever been attained by those of England. This memorable battle was fought on the 3rd of June, 1665, off the coast of Suffolk, and the brilliant success was considered mainly attributable to the adoption of the naval signals and the line of battle at sea, which had been discovered by the naval genius of the Duke of York. Eighteen great ships of the Dutch were taken or burnt, and but one ship lost of the British Navy. The chief slaughter was on board the Duke's own ship, especially around his person, for the friends he loved best were slain by his side and he was covered with their blood. These were Lord Muscary and Charles Berkeley, Lord Falmouth. They were well avenged, for James instantly ordered all his guns to fire into the hull of Opdam, the Dutch admiral's ship. At the third shot, she blew up. The parliament voted James a present of 60,000 pounds as a testimony for the great service he had performed the maternal anxiety of the queen-mother henrietta on account of the peril to which the duke of york had been exposed in the late fight wrung from charles a promise that he should not go into battle again the nation united in this feeling for james was then idol of his country if his earnest representations had been heeded by charles and his short-sighted ministers the insult that was offered to england by the dutch aggression on the ships at chatham in the year sixteen sixty seven would never have taken place end of section one